Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 12, 2014, and my guest is Stephen Tellis, author and professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. Steve, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for inviting me. Our topic for today is a recent article you wrote for National Affairs titled Kludgeocracy in America. It's an indictment of a particular set of problems that we have with governance in America and our political system. What is kludge and why do you consider America a kludgeocracy? So uh, a kludge is a term that comes from computer programming, uh, and the Oxford English Dictionary defines it as an ill-assorted collection of parts assembled to fulfill a particular purpose, a clumsy but temporarily effective solution to a particular fault or problem. Uh, it's hard not to see that uh, that definition as describing lots of what uh, government today does. Um, a lot of what government today does uh, is an effort um, in the absence of being able to get rid of a lot of stuff we've already got to simply add new things on top of what we already have and therefore try to make uh, what we're doing now consistent with what we've done before. Um, the Affordable Care Act, which I supported um, and still grudgingly support now, is a pretty good example of that, right? We had Medicaid and Medicare and uh, employer um, uh, healthcare plans and all that, all you know, and S-chip and all that other stuff. And then we added a bunch of new stuff on top of that um, in the Affordable Care Act because, in part because it was so hard to tear up all the stuff that we already had and making all those pieces somehow fit together um, is complex for government to do, right? A lot of what uh, the problems we've had with the exchanges are, are the result of trying to create a system to deal with all of that uh, that complexity. And it's hard for citizens to cope with or understand. Um, and in some cases, makes it hard for them to know who to blame when they um, when they have problems that they seem like they can't understand, but they can't figure out what the source of it it is or even who is responsible for it. So what's the underlying cause of that phenomenon? So we understand why this happens in, say, the design of an operating system, a, a metaphor you used in your in your article, um, or at least we see it happening there. Why did this particular piece of kludge, uh, the Affordable Care Act, why did it have to get layered on everything else? Why didn't we just say, well, look, this current system is a big mess. And let's uh, let's start from scratch and have a better one. Right. So the um, in the article, I, defi- I identify a bunch of different elements of the causes of plagiocracy, many of which I think um, did play out in the Affordable Care Act. Uh, first of all, is simply the structure of American institutions. Um, American institutions, as we all learned uh, when we were boys and girls, um, uh, uh, create separate uh, separation of powers, uh, and that separation of powers, a lot of the the original theory behind that was that it would constrain government. It would keep government from acting because it would create all of these veto points. And in fact, um, uh, it does. And we've actually multiplied veto points on top, right? Our committee system uh, within each branch of Congress um, uh, has some uh, extra veto points uh, because we've got multiple committees. 
Um, and so you might think, well, that should all just make it harder to do stuff. Um, but what it really does is, in the article I say, these operate less like veto points and more like toll booths, um, where the people who are at these particular veto points uh, aren't actually interested in just stopping things. Right? Usually what they're interested in is extracting a toll and saying, if you want to get past the toll, here's the price you have to pay. Right? And the price you have to pay in many cases is leaving everything we've already got in place because those um, toll takers are connected to interests who are um, invested in existing arrangements uh, of government. And so the, the separation of powers designed to actually um, uh, control the growth of government has also simultaneously made it hard to undo or redo aspects of government once they're already in place. Again, that's a kind of a paradox or an irony of our constitutional system that it does operate to slow government on the way up, uh, but it also arguably operates to slow government either on the way down or trying to simply change it laterally. Um, so but, let's make a I, distinction between, as you do in, the, in your article, between size and complexity. So liberals and conservatives in the big picture political arguments that we have, whether it's at a presidential election or over a particular issue like health care, tend to argue about the things that get waved around are things like government's too big or government's not big enough or government should have a bigger role in this area. And your point is that it isn't so much that government's big or small, it's that it's complex and opaque. It's not transparent and it's and it's not designed by anybody. It's emergent. So as a result, it doesn't necessarily lead to good policy in the area. It's just a complicated, messy policy. Is that accurate? Yes. Um, so – I mean, I think a couple of examples here are useful. I mean, the, the one that I think is most useful in making this distinction between um, thinking about policy in terms of big and small and thinking of it in terms of complex and simple is uh, our retirement programs. So in essence, we have two parallel sets of retirement programs in the United States. Right? We have Social Security, um, which whatever you think about it, is from the point of view of the user incredibly simple. Right, you work all your life, taxes get taken out, um, you retire, uh, and checks start appearing in your mailbox. Right, from the point of view of that, right, you don't really need to know anything, you don't need to learn anything, you don't need to deal with a lot of complexity. That's simply how Social Security, at least the the retirement part of Social Security, works. Um, we also have a parallel system of IRAs, 401ks, all kinds of other complicated mechanisms for shielding. Um, savings from taxation um, that turn out to be very complex, very hard for individuals to understand. Uh, anybody who's actually tried to look at their um, employer uh, plan and try and sort through the dozens and dozens of mutual funds that they're presented with there will know what I'm, uh, I'm talking about. Um, and so we've got two separate parallel systems uh, the argument for Social Security um, is basically saying at whatever level of retirement savings we want um, to be guaranteed through government, that's a much more simple, transparent way to do it. And it's also, in some ways, much easier to hold responsible, right? We actually know um, exactly how much government's spending on Social Security, um, uh, the, uh, whereas in the case of, um, of our parallel private retirement system, a lot of the, the, the costs are actually private, right? All those people who feel like they have to hire financial advisors to tell them what their allocation and their account should be, 
all the people who are, you know, busily reading magazines and other things, trying to get themselves up the learning curve about all these different mutual funds, which almost always turn out to give them worse results than simply a um, uh, uh, an index fund would. Um, that's all real costs in people's time and anxiety at a period in which we're already overwhelmed with the complexity of society in general. So again, I would distinguish those um, uh, that complexity, simplicity axis from the uh, big versus small government axis. Well, I, I, I hate to disagree with the creator of the concept, but I, I don't, that doesn't strike me as a particularly good example in, in the following sense. Uh, it's true that private investing is complicated, uh, but that's because there are a lot of choices. And you, we can debate – it's an interesting debate about whether that's good or bad. I think it's good. Some people think it's bad. The, to me, the government part of it is fairly straightforward, right? We have the tax shielding of, of certain types of savings versus not other types and the tax shielding of certain kind of investments and not other types. Uh, it seems to – and on the other hand – the Social Security system, I think, is quite complex and quite opaque. Uh, most people don't know what they paid into it in their life. It's uh, taken out automatically. It's true. It's simple to, to receive, pay the money and receive the check. But the governance part of it is not simple at all. Uh, for a long time, uh, I think still, maybe it's just flip-flopped recently, but for a long time, the money that you paid in through your payroll taxes didn't go toward anybody's retirement, particularly. Some of it did, but most of it or a lot of it went to other things the government does. Uh, that's going to change if it hasn't – it will change soon if it hasn't already because the system won't have enough money to pay for the retirement. It'll have to start tapping into into direct taxation. So to me – and then how much you get paid is very complicated. It's a strange formula that most people don't know anything about. They, it's true. They just get the check. So – I want to disagree with you, and I want to suggest take the example you gave in your paper, which is your essay, which is taxation. So taxation is unbelievably complicated. It does serve a whole bunch of special interests, and changing that is very, very hard for that reason. So uh, to me, the, the retirement thing is there are intergenerational issues. There's issues about wealth versus power, poverty. There's implicit redistribution, but the real kludge is our, is our tax system. Do you agree with that? Uh, well, I, I disagree with the, with the re retirement thing, and I'll, I'll go back around that with you one more time. Um, I don't actually think mo if you were to survey most Social Security recipients that they find it complex or difficult to understand. Again, you know, today we we almost always get a report from the Social Security Administration that tells us how much we've actually paid in and then what our monthly retirement um, will be. Um, and again. There is a complicated formula that determines how you get from your monthly, you know, your monthly earnings to your Social Security payment, um, but that's actually invisible from the point of view of the recipient, right? That may be good or bad, but from the point of view of the recipient, it's perfectly It's simple. simple. I agree with that. Um, so again, I think that's the only – whereas – the number of, of discrete decisions that individuals have to make over their lifetime trying to invest their 401k or IRAs generally overwhelm their decision-making capacity. I think that's, you know, um, and require them to fall into depending in, uh, on uh, financial advisors who they, in many cases, also don't have the, the information to be able to effectively um, supervise either. So, but that's that, not a problem know, with have, but that's not a problem with gatekeeping or veto power, the separation of powers. That's a problem. That's a problem to the extent it's a problem with private choice. Uh, we could always make right, things well, simpler. We could have no. We could change groceries to just have four things. You know, starch, 
protein, carbs, and fat or, or sugar, but and that would make shopping easier. But that's the issue that you're well, highlighting, which I think is is very interesting, is the role that political incentives play for political actors in making things uh, yucky. Right. Well, I think the same. But I think the same point applies. You know, there's there's lots of um, political interests that uh, essentially want. Um, uh, you know, one in, uh, to increase this pool of mutual funds from, again, essentially unsophisticated investors who are also largely disaggregated from which they can get large um, uh, 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 investment charges that um, are, in fact, larger than you would uh, you would get in any much more large, much more aggregated system. Um, and I do think that the basic the same basic political economy applies right once you actually have these things in place. Um, interest groups are almost always better at playing defense than offense, right? Once you have those tax-sheltered savings in place, it's very hard to get uh, to undo them because you have to go through every one of those veto points all over again to undo what government's already doing. And I think, I, I mean, and I think the same principle applies to the tax system. Now, in fact, everything we're actually talking about here about retirement systems is, in fact, a feature of the tax system. Right. It's not a feature of, of some other. Right. I mean, all these are about tax sheltered savings, which is part of the general complexity of government and the multiple different aspects of tax um, uh, uh, sheltered savings. So we don't just have one. We don't just have 401ks. We have IRAs. We have Roth IRAs. We have all these other ones that are designed for education. Um, that is, we have a, a, you know, even if you think we ought to shelter savings from taxation, we've done so in the most complicated and overlapping and difficult to understand way that also uh, people don't really understand how these multiple different tax sheltered savings systems actually interact. And to get the maximum benefit out of them, you generally have to pay for expensive tax advisors who tell you which of them you need to be uh, using and how and how to maximize the benefit out of them. I totally agree with that. Um, let's talk about the role of federalism. Uh, how does federalism uh, lead to kleptocracy? So um, federalism is a term under which many sins occur. Um, uh, that is, it's very easy to, to talk about federalism without being clear about what you mean by it. Uh, and the classic still, again, lots of us who took intro to American government will remember uh, distinction between layer cake federalism and marble cake federalism. This used to be a better metaphor when people ate marble cake uh, <laughs> back when back when you and I were boys. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, in a uh, marble cake, right? Right. You know, in a layer cake, you just have a straight, you know, one layer cake on top of another. Right. And you think about it in terms of federalism, you can imagine a situation in which states had a clear set of functions that they were running, and the federal government had a clear set of functions they were running. So. For example, the federal government would be running healthcare programs and it would fund it all and would run it all and the states would be doing education and they would fund it all and they would run it all. Um, that w is one kind of federalism. Um, that is not our federalism, right? The federalism that we've been living under for at least the last 80 years is one of um, uh, pervasive interpenetration of layers of government, right? So think about Medicaid as the simplest one, right? The federal government pays about half of Medicaid more under the Affordable Care Act. Um, it sends, but it doesn't administer Medicaid. The states administer Medicaid, um, but it sends lots and lots of rules down to the states about how they're going to run, um, how they're going to run it. Um, 
that in fact is the modal form of government um, for a huge amount of what government does. That's true of the environment, right? A lot of the actual implementation of environment is all at the state level, except with you know pervasive government intervention. Education is um, in some sense uh, an extreme example of this, right? Even though it's uh, run uh, state and locally, the, um, uh, the, le the level of rules that go along with federal money is extraordinary um, and uh, as lots of evidence uh, shows leads to a kind of compliance mentality because there are so many complicated rules that are being applied from the federal government down to um, down to the states that people are constantly worried they're going to get on the wrong side of it so rather than thinking about um, uh, being innovative or doing things new um, every time people think about that they're always worried that that's going to end up putting them on the wrong side of the line of um, some particular kind of government uh, rule. So I think federalism ends up, um, uh, and then, but of course, once we have that, once we have these, what I call intergovernmental kludges, um, they're very hard to undo. Uh, and the tendency is to keep doing more of them, right? So the, effect, the Affordable Care Act, in fact, <clears throat> took what was already an intergovernmental kludge of Medicaid and uh, because that's what government had already been doing, that's what government had already been attempting and, and extending uh, health insurance, the path of least resistance was to do more of it, right? And to expand Medicaid um, and to do all the exchanges through the states because the federal government didn't have um, the uh, capacity or administrative kind of capacity. That was all in the states, right? So once you start doing intergovernmental kludges, the path of least resistance in any case is to keep doing more of it. Yeah, the puzzle for me with the Affordable Care Act is why we just why did we didn't just expand Medicaid, uh, which we already had in place for people who couldn't afford health care or health insurance. Actually, I don't care about health insurance. It bothers me that we keep talking about health insurance. Right. We really care about health care. Right. So we have a government system that already helps poor people. And uh, why, why didn't well, we're off subject here a little bit? But why do you think well, we, we did? Didn't? I mean, that was I mean, in fact, the biggest part. I mean, of the Affordable Care Act was not the exchanges. Um, it was the massive expansion of Medicaid. Um, now, of course, again, this is another element of complexity because of our, uh, in part, the complexity that was introduced by the Supreme Court here. The, um, the Affordable Care Act expansion of Medicaid ha had to be voluntary for states. So the states that arguably needed, uh, you know, had, uh, had the greatest need for an expansion of health insurance like Texas basically turned down the um, the expansion, but it was a huge expansion. And I think that was where the largest percentage of increase in health insurance coverage actually came from out of the Affordable Care Act. Um, everybody was talking about the exchange about the exchanges because that was the sexier part and it had the mandate and that's what everybody was focusing on. But that was not where the real, um, the real kind of raw power of increasing uh, health insurance coverage came from. But mentioning... Um the exchanges reminds me of another aspect of the problem that you mentioned, which is the um, the role that the federal government plays in, I would say, corrupting or running private enterprises uh, while keeping the illusion that they're private. So we have private insurance companies, which they're already not so private. There's a huge amount of regulation that decides what they can insure, what they have to insure, what they can charge, whether they can operate across state lines, the cost of doing so, et cetera. And now we've gone and said, okay, you can't offer certain types of – the government said – the federal government said you can't offer certain kinds of plans. Well, you can for a while, maybe. And, um, you know, there's a point where 
the profitability of these enterprises, how they're run, uh, the losses are all certain tend to be uh, socialized. Uh, we've seen this in other areas. We see it with the banks. The banks in the United States are called private, but in many ways they are they're highly regulated and they're favored and punished yeah. and everything else by the federal government in ad hoc and sometimes legislative ways, but mainly ad hoc ways, which to me is very destructive of of the rule of law. So talk about that issue about contractors and private firms versus public uh, provision. Right. So again, this is, I, I mean, I think this, the entire story I'm telling here is in part a story of ironies, um, a story of people trying to do one thing and getting uh, in some ways the opposite. So we can think about um, uh, the ways that conservatives have attempted to control government. One of them was privatization. Now, of course, there's, there's multiple ways you can do things that are called privatization, right? Um, when the British privatized, um, uh, you know, many of the, uh, you know, at least some of the privatized industries, basically what they did is they said, you know, this airline company um, was, you know, British Airways was a public company and now it's just like every other private company, right? It's going to be regulated just like every other private company. Um, but lots of privatizations, most privatizations arguably were not like that, right? Um, uh, there still was an expectation that this, um, that these firms had a social function um, after privatization. Uh, so the social function remained, but the control of, pri of, um, of ownership shifted, right? The, um, what you get out of that equation is regulation, um, often pervasive regulation because you're still trying to perform some function that people think of as public through a private entity. Um, now, the, the tendency in all the, those cases is to get exactly what you're describing, right? To get a kind of faux private sector. Um, and so we see that in military contracting, right? Military contractors, most of them have a single, um, uh, or at least primary uh, uh, um, uh, buyer of their services, and that's the federal government, the Pentagon. Um, uh, you know, some of the, the largest consulting firms, especially around here in the Washington area, um, uh, their primary or in some cases almost exclusive um, uh, purchase of their services is government. Um, and I think some of that's come from the fact that uh, conservatives thought, oh, if we actually, you know, even if we're going to perform this, this function is going to be considered to be social. If we can put it, uh, push it out into the private sector, um, then that private sector will become a lobby for uh, further privatization. Um, but in many cases, those uh, private contractors become a lobby for the um, continuing socialization of the function, so long as they're the ones who actually end up getting the, the benefits, right? And you can multiply these things through multiple different areas. And I think that's one point where, just like I was suggesting that um, one way to solve the intergovernmental kludge problem is to create rules that force us to make decisions about whether this should be federal or state, uh, as opposed to constantly trying to split the difference. Um, in many cases between public and private, we need rules that help us do that, right? Either something's going to be straight up government function um, where it's clearly funded through uh, taxation and then the money goes out through spending, um, or it's going to be straight up private and uh, owned and, the, uh, and firms are going to be able to go in and out of um, business, um, uh, but it's whenever you end up getting this middle ground that you often get the, what you describe as corruption, problems of rule of law, you get kind of corporatist arrangements, and all of those are very problematic, but in a way they're a result of us trying to split a bunch of differences, right? 
um, trying to get, you know, uh, public action, but with private actors. Um, and that, which is a project that has gone on for a long time, right? Remember, we all remember reading, you know, Charlie Schultz's little book, uh, The Public Use of Private Interest. Um, and then later on, uh, David Osborne's books on, you know, talking about how government should be doing steering rather than rowing. Um, hmm. I think arguably there's a good case that uh, if government's going to do something, it ought to steer and row. Um, and if it's not willing to steer and row, it ought to leave it to the private sector. Well, an interesting example of that would be uh, education, where it's not at the federal level, but at the at the local level, right? It's bizarre to some extent, and we don't just take it for granted. But it's a little bit bizarre that government doesn't just fund education. It also provides it. It steers and rows, right? doesn't do such a good job. I personally would like to see it stop uh, rowing or stop. I don't know what the right metaphor is. Um, well, see, well, you know, well, rowing is the uh, – is the um, uh, yeah, yeah. So you know, steering would be the kind of micro regulation. Yeah, I'd like them to do neither. Um, I wouldn't mind if they funded the team and then say, "Good luck. I hope you win the race." But um, in- yeah, and I, I think you know, look, I, I, in the article, I basically say, um, you know, there's a good argument for uh, for a national voucher. Say, let's, you know, there's no real good argument for um, having arguably the states or localities involved in education at all, right? Um, that is. Uh, there's no good argument for having, um, you know, property tax funded things for this. We got to have straight up vouchers funded through income tax. And then people get to, you know, would get to choose in a market of private providers. That would be a pretty simple way to deal with these things. And there'd be also a simple way to deal with all of the, the distributive problems we have of deal of having, um, you know, thousands of different taxing jurisdictions that are, um, are funding education. Um, but, you know, instead, we've been trying to do it through complicated mechanisms like all these different funds that the Department of Education distributes to the states, all these complicated adequacy lawsuits that uh, keep going through all these um, uh, state courts. They're all basically an effort to solve a distributive problem where there is actually a fairly simple straight up mechanism, which would be to move to a system like national vouchers, um, which, again, I would I would support uh, – uh, I'm not sure if you would support Russ. Would you? Well, I'd prefer it to the current system, but I think it's always an issue of what's better versus worse. And I, I think what's fascinating about your article, what made me uh, think about lots of applications, is there's so many problems where the government says, "Look, this isn't." Some politician says, "This isn't working well," so we're gonna. I'm gonna propose this solution. And I was so often I look at it and I say, "Well, the reason it's not working well is because you did this thing before." Why don't we get rid of that thing? And the answer is because that thing benefits some people and nobody wants to to change that. So we do layer this stuff on top of it. I recently tweeted that the common core, which is a idea that there should be common things that people learn at, in school, is a horrible idea in my opinion. There's no reason the federal government should be deciding what should be in the common core. Uh, but maybe it's not a bad idea given that so many schools are not responsive to their students and the parents and don't teach very much. And maybe there's some – this is a around the uh, – outside the – excuse me, an end around to the fact that the current system doesn't respond very well to students and, and parents. But why wouldn't we fix that problem? Why are we always trying to solve something that's already – you know, it's like another one would be the high cost of medical care. Well, we, we're pretty confident. I'm pretty confident why the medical, medical care is so expensive and why healthcare insurance is expensive. We know a lot of reasons. It's things like mandated things that insurance has to cover, and it's the, the underlying cost. The underlying cost 
tends to come from the fact that people pay with other people's money. And when you do that, people want to buy more than they otherwise would. And But we like those features of it. So we leave those in place and we try to find a way and end around to solve the problem that usually causes a new set of problems we've got to fix. So that's right. well, a I – mean, go ahead. Right. I mean, the one thing I would actually say on, on that, um, again, if you're trying to figure out wh- why is it – that there's a durable bias against undoing stuff we've already we're already doing right and uh, and creating space to do something new or to simply solve the problem by getting rid of the thing we're already doing. Um, again, I think the veto points thing helps with that. Um, but the other thing is we know about interest groups, um, uh, especially in a system with uh, with as pervasive an interest groups um, as we have. Is interest groups usually form not in anticipation of government action, but in response to government action, right? That is, um, you know, the elderly were not really organized before Social Security. They got organized as a consequence of Social yep, Security. I agree. Um, and so when you actually look at the universe of interest groups we have, the universe of interest groups we have is essentially the mobilized force of those who've already got what they want out of government, right? Um, they, you know, they want a little bit extra or they want to, you know, push it up a little bit here or there, but the most of what they're, what they're, um, they're there for is to protect what they've already got. Um, uh, and therefore that also creates a durable bias against undoing things. Um, because the people who might want something new are generally likely to be relatively unmobilized, whereas the people who more or less like what we're already doing are much more likely to be mobilized, right? So all the people who might benefit from a big national voucher system uh, are likely to be unorganized, in fact, are unorganized. Um, and um, all the people who are benefiting from the complicated set of um, federal grants that go to school jurisdictions, right, the ones whose job is related to sorting through all of them and unpackaging them for uh, for localities, right, they all know exactly what their interest is in government, and they're all organized here, a lot of them in, you know, DuPont Circle. The same thing is true of the student loan system, right? There's lots of easier ways to deal with that than the complicated system of um, tax-sheltered savings and other kinds of things we have, right? You could just straight up increase the Pell Grant system and get rid of everything else we've got. But um, we have a whole system here in one DuPont Circle, which is two blocks from where I'm uh, sitting, um, from all the people who both understand our existing complicated system of higher education financing and um, their living depends on, uh, on that existing system. So again, our political system has a bias toward what's already being done that's both in terms of mobilization and in terms of our arrangement of institutions. Uh, and if you want to do something about it, you have to somehow either change that bias of mobilization or change the bias of institutional arrangement. So let's talk uh, cross-country for a minute. Uh, when I get depressed about uh, crony capitalism or, say, um, some particular aspect of it, let's take agricultural price supports or – uh, the sugar quotas, which uh, benefit a handful of families in America, make them really rich and make me really poor. But that doesn't make me really poor. It just means I pay a slightly higher price for things with sugar. And as you point out, those of us who pay a, sh- a slightly higher price for sugar aren't really well organized and never will be. It's, it's The effects are small. They're dispersed, as uh, Mansur Olson understood, that this is going to make it likely that sugar quotas persist. But I look at that and I say, well, you know, it's a small thing. It's not a big thing compared to, say – I don't know, Argentina 
where if you're a friend of the ruling family, you might get a monopoly, um, uh, et cetera. But then I started to think maybe I sh- the glass is, is half empty here in the United States too. Uh, the paper today has a story that New Jersey is not going to allow uh, Tesla, the auto company, to sell cars directly to consumers because the dealers in the state don't like it. They've, uh, they make a lot of money. They give a lot of money to politicians. The auto dealers, are gonna, they're going to block that everywhere. And so consumers are going to be punished with, with fewer choices. Uh, when I look across and then I say, well, sugar's small, but you know, help bailing out the banks, that was big. Uh, that distorted our capital system. Forget the transfer of money. The distortion of, of investment decisions, capital allocations, kind of horrifying. Having a lousy school system, kind of horrifying. Not so good for the next generation and, and reduces, I think, economic mobility and so on. So why is it? That our system has so many of this uh, of these f- phenomena, so many things that that benefit small groups then get locked into place, and then the status quo persists. Compared to other countries, where or do they all have it? I mean, we're we're supposed to be right. a, a democracy. Well, Is it just that? Well, it's a democracy that works pretty well. And last point, as a classical liberal, I used to I like to believe that the Constitution used to protect us from this. The Constitution isn't really in play anymore, except for a handful of certain kinds of rights. Not for economic stuff, so we're just on a we're in free we're in, it's a free form game, and the people can can bite into the system and take a slice for themselves. We'll keep, we'll keep doing it. Right. So let me. Um, that was about three questions. So let me see how I can sort through them. Um, one. Cro- so the cross national story, I think, is a little complicated. Um, my colleague Adam Scheingate wrote his first book. Uh, was called The Rise of the Agricultural Welfare State, and it's a comparison of agriculture in the United States, Japan, and France. And so one of the things he says is, um, so it is a little depressing to look at, you know, things like sugar subsidies and that thing, but um, if you want to see really depressing, look at France or Japan, like look yeah. at corporate systems, rice, right? Corporate system. Price of rice in Japan, um, 10 times the world price. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and so the, the reason for that, right, is that, um, you know, again, you know, I remember when I was uh, when I was a boy, when I was in college, uh, I was a journalist and I was covering um, I got a great job where I got to cover uh, all these obscure parts of the federal government. And I'd go into the, you know, the Department of Agriculture and it was just like, you know, it seemed like a wholly owned subsidiary of, you know, a bunch of farmers. Right. Um, that's nowhere near what it is uh, in France and Japan. Right. Where literally the the, uh, the farmers basically own the government. Um and so, you know, if you look at the United States, you know, we did actually get the Freedom to Farm Act um, back in the 90s. And that was problematic. It wasn't perfect, right? But France and Japan have never gotten anything um, that, you know, with, with that uh, much deregulation. And there actually was a pretty fair amount of deregulation in the Freedom to Farm Act, right? The clawing away of the subsidies didn't really last, right? But the deregulation of uh, what we do in farming actually did. And I think one of the lessons for that is that, um, our system is all gummed up with uh, with interest groups and with disproportional mobilization. Um, but all of those um, those veto points that I mentioned um, that stop action from occurring are also entry points, right? They're places where you can start getting something going. You can start, you know, you don't have to get everybody to already agree to get things moving, right? You can get um, a hearing going in Congress, right, to start trying to get people sensitized to the issue, right? Um, there's lots of that, that kind of stuff that, that does 
introduced a kind of element of dynamism into our system. And so if you, um, one of the books that I think, uh, especially people who are interested in these things need to read is um, Frank Baumgartner and Brian Jones's book, Agendas and Instability in American Politics. And one of the things they say is the, the pattern of American governance is one where you get long periods of stability, um, which are consistent with the kind of iron triangle story that we all learned when we were kids. Um, but then sudden wrenching changes where suddenly interest groups that seemed un- indestructible uh, suddenly are put on the back foot. Um, and I think that's partially because of the dynamism of our institutional system, right? The same thing that locks things down and keeps changes from happening helps you, uh, in many cases, attack special interests. Um, the real problem, right, is our political system has limited parallel processing capacity, right? There's only so many things that it can handle in attacking existing interest group arrangements at any one time. Um, so I actually do think that in some ways, you know, ideas do have some relevance, probably more than a standard public choice account would make you think, right? That a lot of these special interest arrangements are actually vulnerable to exposure, but there's only so much capacity our political system has at any one time to expose the fact that, you know, the sugar subsidy um, has all these perverse distributive consequences and simply, you know, enriches a small group of people. Um, The political system has space for about one of those kind of focusing events at any one time. Um, But has a hard time doing all of them at once. Yeah, um, but it's it's not just the pol- political system. It's also our <clears throat> our brains and our media. And I've often wondered, you know, the the Washington Post might write an expose on the sugar issue. I'm sure they have. Uh, every once in a while, th- there's an article about some similar thing, right? Some embarrassment. Um, that's what that's the daily fare of of a good investigative newspaper, right? So they run that article and you might read it as a citizen and you might get a little bit outraged and upset. And then you got other things on your mind and eventually it slips below the surface again. What would happen if every day, every day, the front page of the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, harped on one of these issues, right? Would it make a difference? You'd think it would. There would be some shame eventually. Well, this is one, again, one of the things, if you look at the, uh, and I really do recommend your listeners um, uh, read Baumgartner and Jones' book. One thing they show is these moments when you get um, sudden disruptions in the political agenda are characterized by um, things where you get, you know, story after story after story that's going, uh, that's going out, that, that's having the features you're talking about, right? So again, if you go back and look at one ended up crushing nuclear power in the 70s, right? Yeah. It was that you got these scandals, right, that people kept writing story after story about problems of nuclear safety and flaws of the regulatory system, right? This was not like a one-day story. This was something that dominated the, the, the media agenda that then members of Congress felt like, you know, they were constantly worried that they were going to get caught on the wrong side of this issue. Um, again, if, even if you go back and look at tax reform in the mid-80s, there's arguably a story like this, right? That there were constant stories about how, um, you know, GE wasn't paying any taxes or all these big companies weren't paying any taxes, right? You could keep writing story after story of the, you know, wealthy company not paying any taxes kind of um, uh, feature, right? So the thing I think that really distinguishes those moments when you really get the capacity for, you know, major destructive 
fourth um, are when those things become more than just a single day story, but they become a full on scandal and sort of media feeding frenzy. Uh, and again, you do, you know, you do see these things. These things do happen. And I think they are a regular feature of our political system, um, but they depend upon ideas, right? Somebody has to be able to take that particular scandal and put it into a larger framework so people think, you know, that this isn't just about some individual, right, but this is about a structural problem with our agricultural system or our nuclear power system. There has to be a policy entrepreneur there who's willing to kind of ride this thing and coordinate that kind of scandal. And there have to be government officials, right, who are sort of waiting to be able to do something. And then this is their this is their moment. Um, and I think that's what characterizes the periods in which you actually do get some capacity for government to, you know, to destroy things it's already doing as opposed to just layering things on top. The real danger in a lot of these cases, and there's a great book that I really recommend by uh, Eric Potashnik called Reforms at Risk. And essentially what it does is it says, you know, we, we had all these books, at least in political science, that in the 80s that were about, oh, hey, you know, Mansur Olson had told us that um, uh, government just basically serves the organized and screws the um, diffuse interests, right? Um, but we'd had all these things government did in the 70s that didn't seem to be characterized like that, right? You think about trucking deregulation or airline deregulation. Um, That's a bunch right. Of those, a, a bunch of those areas, right, government actually did something very negative to a concentrated interest. Um, now, the problem is, right, that happens because you get these feeding frenzies because suddenly everybody's talking about how wealthy the airline industry, you know, executives are getting off of a monopoly uh, industry structure and how much this is driving up prices for consumers. Um, and so you get this brief moment where everybody's focused on that and they uh, exist in the incumbents are uh, disadvantaged. The question is what happens after that? Right. Um, and so in the case of tax reform, we actually did radically simplify the tax code in 1986 because there was this brief moment where everybody was focused on that. Um, and uh, everybody was, um, you know, in the, in the public or people, at least members of Congress, were worried that they might actually be held responsible uh, if they voted against a, a tax simpl simplification, right? But once you did it, then everybody moved on to the next thing. Everybody moved on to focusing on something else. And it was easy for all the interests that had lost before to come back and, you know, claw back, you know, come back out of the woodwork, right? Yeah. The, the, I mean, I, just give one other example. The counterexample that, um, that Potashian gives is airline deregulation, right? So airline deregulation worked, um, in part because it literally destroyed um, the strongest supporters of airline regulation, right? Look at the first people who, um, you know, who went to the wall and got bankrupted by airline um, deregulation, right? It was airlines like Eastern Airlines that had the worst cost structure, right? Which is why they wanted regulation in the first place. Um, so if you can actually get these simplifying mechanisms um, that actually um, destroy the people who were uh, who were advocates for the previous kind of corporatist arrangement. Then you've got some capacity to actually make that stick and and uh, and keep a relatively simple, um, streamlined kind of system in place. Yeah, that's fascinating. That the the downside or the the pessimistic story about that is uh, to me is Dodd Frank. Here you had this incredible, what should have been an incredible watershed moment. The um, 
the abuse of the fiscal system by the banks uh, and somehow a regulatory thing was put in place that doesn't seem to have solved any of the underlying problems. I partly blame my profession for that. It's willingness to uh, say that all these things were necessary and, uh, and and not require more evidence from people who said they had to be done, these bailouts, and they couldn't have been done a different way. But I think I find that to be remarkable, although I have a little bit of hope that the next time it happens, maybe, maybe politically it will be difficult to do what they did before. We'll, I guess we'll see. Um, now, a lot of our discussion so far could lead a, a listener to think that we're talking about what's sometimes called, I think, the ratchet effect, that things get put in place, they're hard to get rid of. And so as, as some people have argued that, well, that's why government keeps getting bigger. There's not much of an attempt, ability to make it smaller. But you argue that both liberals and conservatives should dislike Kludge. Explain why that's the case. So the um, so I guess they're on the on the one side, on the liberal side, um, one problem with uh, with kludgy policies is that citizens don't often recognize go- that government um, is in fact doing anything for them, right? So again, we have this feature of public opinion that shows that um, there are a lot of people who, in fact, are pervasive recipients of government assistance um, who uh, uh, who believe the government is actually only helping poor and black people, right? And that's a pretty common feature of public opinion. Um, now, part of that is because um, the the actual hand of government, right, in their helping them pay their mortgage, helping them send their kid to college, et cetera, et cetera, right? These are all things that people experience, especially in the middle class, often experience as private um, because the hand of government is uh, hidden, even though it's there through subsidy, through regulation, through market structure, and through everything else. Um, and so part of my argument is liberals would be better with simpler, more straightforward, more visible forms of government because it would make clear to citizens, right, the degree to which their um, uh, their social welfare is dependent upon some kind of uh, muscular role for government. Um, on the other hand, I think where conservatives are concerned, um, it becomes uh, hard actually for people who uh, who want to get government out of particular areas when government's sort of everywhere and nowhere. It's hard to it's like you know trying to stab you know uh, you know gel it of the wall right. You just can't do it. You can't get the the thing your your target's just too hard to grab a hold of when government is all over the tax code. It's all penetrating through um, the health uh, system, our system of the private system. litigation and everything yeah. else. I love I love when people say, uh, "Well, we know private healthcare is a bad idea. Look how low, look how expensive it is in the United States." <laughs> like, right. well, we could try it. Maybe we'd see how expensive it is, but don't call what we have now a private system. Right, and so I think the other thing, of course, is that um, we end up uh, having um, lots of uh, you know. In some ways, it's actually very hard to say that you're a supporter of private enterprise when so much of private enterprise um, is, in fact, you know. Are, are basically, as as you sort of described it before, basically, um, you know, public utilities, um, or have been rendered into public utilities. Um, you know, I think in a way, it would be a lot better if we had a governmental system in which some things were just big, you know, big dumb stupid things where government was just moving money around or doing relatively simple tasks that only it can do. And then left um, the private sector on its own. That would be a much easier private sector to defend um, than the kind of private sector we have uh, we have today. Um, so again, I think, and I think the other thing is, I think arguably that um, kludgeocracy is a lot more expensive, right? Um, that. 
big, you know, complicated multi-layer systems, right, are um, are in fact forms of taxation. Um, now they don't go directly through the federal government budget, but they all end up imposing costs on private actors. They make uh, uh, goods more expensive. Those are all basically forms of extraction, but they're hidden forms of extraction that are hard to mobilize against. And so what I basically say in the article is that ironically, by pushing down on the capacity of government to do things transparently through taxing and spending, we haven't gotten rid of the demand for government. We simply constrained one form of its supply. And so, you know, like a down pillow, you push it down in one place, you know, the the feathers all push up somewhere else. Um, and I think that's essentially what's happened with some of conservative and libertarians' efforts to control government is by pushing down as effectively as they have on taxing and spending, everything's come up through private litigation, mandates, um, regulation, and all the uh, these other devices. Um, again, I think, you know, you can look at some evidence like that, like, you know, the fact that we've been um, pushing as hard, you know, conservatives and libertarians have pushed as hard as they had against carbon taxation, hasn't reduced people's desire to do something about global warming, but we're seeing it through all these incredibly complicated subsidies for electric car makers and um, uh, attempts to put regulations on what kind of light bulbs people can use, right? Um, uh, you know, we, we ought to actually think about loosening up on the one form of, um, of government that we actually know best how to measure and control, which is taxing and spending, while putting more constraints on these other forms of government that we haven't actually figured out how to control um, yeah, another, or even understand. Another example would be uh, the minimum wage, which is um, economists debate whether it reduces jobs or not, which I find shocking, but it's it's a fact. We don't agree. Uh, and – the alternatives are things like increasing the earned income tax credit or paying some kind of wage subsidy, but those come out of budget. So it's much more attractive for politicians to just mandate that the private sector pay more. And it's a tax. Right. It's a hidden tax. To me, most of the tax falls on people who lose their jobs or won't find jobs or won't get training because of this tax. But it's clearly – even if you think government should do something to help low-wage people – this is not one of the best ways to do it. <laughs> right. And again, I, I, again, I think this is one of the ironies that the piece tries to put out is that, um, you know, is that the only, the only form of government that we actually know, again, literally down to the penny, we know exactly how much government is spending, right? Um, we know exactly how much it's taxing, right? That's all in the federal budget. You can take a look at it. Um, you think about the system of private litigation, Right. We have, you know, the, the estimates people have of how much, you know, is being distributed through private litigation. Just think about, you know, disability, right? Um, in the Americans Disability Act. Um, you know, people have incredibly wide ranges of sense of how much we're actually spending through the Americans with Disabilities Act. People have almost no sense of what the actual distributive effects are, right? Who's actually benefiting? Um, from that form of um, of regulation, and that's true of most of the t places where we've tried to deal with some social problems through um, uh, through litigation as opposed to through other mechanisms. The same thing is true of um, of regulation, and of which the minimum wage is one. Right? We know exactly how much you know the earned income tax credit is pay is costing us, but the estimates of who's actually paying the minimum wage and where you know and uh, and what the incidence of it is. Um, those are all pretty, uh, pretty complicated and therefore hard to actually get people to focus on. 
Yeah, and it's really hard to tell somebody you don't have a job because of this because you can't show it. It's not necessarily true. Um, and so the people who would normally be against it uh, don't realize that it's affecting them necessarily. Right. Um, you know, while we're talking, I just kept thinking about um, uh, the Affordable Care Act again. I apologize for coming back to it, but it is remarkable how many people supported it when they didn't know what was going to happen. And they just said, well, we'll figure it out. It'll, you know, we'll work it out. It's not going so well. And yet you uh, and others, I don't, I don't see anybody saying it was a mistake. And part of that, I think, is some of it's obviously reputations. Hard people admit they made a mistake. But I think the other issue is there is an awareness that there isn't an easy replacement. So, yeah, it's not great, but it's better than nothing, I think, is, is a common attitude. Do you think that's – is that fair? Does that capture uh, your view? That would probably actually be a pretty good summary of my attitude. Yeah, that's what I figured. Um, yeah. Was that um, – so I think, you know, so, so one of the things is that um, we do know that the major expansions of, um, uh, of social insurance and health care were in moments when one of the parties happened to get, you know, an extraordinary majority in the Senate. So I think part of my attitude was if we're ever going to get close to universal um, coverage, and I know you've got issues with that and should we think about health insurance or not, and that's, that's fine. But my attitude was, you know, if we're going to do it, this is about the only time we're going to be able to do it, right? Um, now, again, you can have some questions about whether we should try to do it or not, but that was my, um, my guess. Um, now, again, I would have rather have done it in a different way, um, but some very smart people thought that this was like the only way that you could get through the, um, you know, through the eye of the needle. Now, part of the, the point I make in the article is um, that, in fact, actually, I think there's a good argument that the uh, the House's um, version of health care was simpler than the Senate's. Now, again, a lot of people would have had disagreements about it, um, uh, but the Senate's ended up being a lot more complicated in part because of the feature of the filibuster, right? One thing going back to my model of uh, veto points, right? One thing the filibuster does, again, it doesn't just stop action, right? It means now you've got 10 extra people, all of whom have to get paid off um, or bought off in order to get past the toll. And I think that's what happened in healthcare, right? You had 10 extra basically Democratic senators who all, you know, and the obvious, you know, the Cornhusker kickback that, you know, happened in Nebraska um, was one example of that, right? Somebody saying, you know, I'll let you get past the toll, but you got to pay a big cost for this, right? And lots of the things that really would have destroyed existing interest in health care were exactly what that last 10, those marginal 10 senators all wanted people not to touch, right? Um, and so I think there's a good argument that um, it was really hard to do, you know, anything that was going to, you know, tear up anything from the, you know, from the roots. And I think, you know, that's true for, you know, Republicans when if they were trying to do tax reform, right? If you look at what Dave Camp proposed, right? You try and get that through the Senate and you're going to find that, even if Republicans had a filibuster-proof um, majority, right, those last 10 Republican senators would often be the ones who would be most likely to want to protect the interests that somebody like Dave Camp was trying to undo. So I do think that um, one thing we have to do in order to uh, really get at this phenomenon of government complexity is to get rid of some of these mechanisms that uh, were designed to keep government from acting, but now basically have the function of making it hard to undo what we've already got in place. Yeah, let's let's we got about five minutes left. Let's close on that because I 
One of the things I learned from your article is the possibility that this some of these features that I've always thought were features are actually bugs. And I think that's a, a really, really interesting uh, insight. So I like – my first thought is I like filibustering. That's fabulous. It slows things down. I like gridlock. I like – as a small government guy, I like things that make it hard for government to get stuff done. Your point is that, yeah, so when government does get stuff done, there are lots of people who, who get paid off. So do you think uh, – it was it culture? Was it social norms in the past that kept people from exploiting these veto points? What happened in, in the post-World War II era that made government grow so dramatically in the United States – uh, and that allowed this clutch to happen, right? We we have different. Obviously, there's different periods of of American history where government's relatively small. But starting around 19, you could say 45. You could say it's an aftermath of World War II. You could argue it's it starts with the Great Society. Somewhere along there, people didn't have any hesitation about collecting those tolls at those at those toll booths. Uh, that seems to me to be a big part of the problem, to, if you're on my side. If you're not on my side, maybe think it's a plus. But I think you make the point pretty persuasively that even for people who like bigger government, it's the wrong way to do it. Do you uh, have any thoughts on why government – why these toll keepers, toll collectors have suddenly been more well, aggressive? So, well, again, I think the argument I would make that I think is especially of interest for um, people of a libertarian mindset um, who generally tend to be the most – supportive of what they think of as the original constitutional design is that um, that constitutional design is probably very good for uh, a people who have a relatively modest expectation for what the federal government's going to do. Um, but once you actually get a mature set of government functions, right? And, and I think the question of how did we end up expanding government so much you know, in that in that period is probably beyond my ability oh, come on. to explain. I, I gave you four. You got at least four minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um, I think the the important point is that um, once you actually get that shift in public expectations, um, our constitutional system starts working in a way the opposite of the way that libertarians would want. Right? Once you've already, you know, any government system is going to develop a fair amount of new uh, new functions and a desirable one is going to be destroying stuff we've already done at the same time as it's um, adding new things, right? That there's going to be both destruction and creation simultaneously. And our, and our system is um, is wired up for creation and not very good at destruction, and that's why you get uh, kludge, right? And I think part of it is, again, if you think about lots of the things, you know, when there were moments when government action was going to occur – um, how did it happen? Well, in lots of these cases, as I use in the case of intergovernmental kludges, right? Um, you know, in the period in the you know 50s and 60s, actually even going back to the 30s, a lot of the uh, expansion of the social welfare state had to happen through the states, through funding state governments, rather than being done straight up centrally, right? Um, and that's because at that time, you know, Southern senators controlled Congress um, and they insisted, they said, okay, you can have your bigger government, but you're going to have to cut, you know, you're going to make sure South Carolina runs it so that we can make sure that black people don't get welfare payments, right? Just to be really blunt about it, right? And the same thing was true of urban political machines. Urban political machines were, you know, were, were in places like Chicago and New York City, said, oh, okay, you can get your bigger government, right? But you got to cut us in on the action. Um, and I think that's a feature of our federalism and separation of powers 
that meant at this moment in which government was expanding, it expanded in all these complicated ways. And the other point I make in the article is the kind of myth of um, the private market caused um, us to try to find ways to um, when we were going to expand government, when there was you know public demand for that to do it in ways that seemingly cut private actors in on the action rather than having government do it fairly straightforwardly um, itself. And so I, I think that the plea I would make to libertarians and conservatives is that they need to really rethink how the institutional features that they associate with our constitution function once you have a mature government. And the challenge is really, how do you undo what that government's already doing? Um, all those mechanisms like separation of powers and the filibuster may work the opposite of the way that they generally think they do. And what would be your plea to liberals? Um, my plea to liberals, I think, would be to um, uh, be willing to you know, go big or go home. Um, that is to um, say that, um, you know, we're going to stop kind of, um, negotiating with ourselves and trying to figure out ways to do government by cutting, uh, you know, private, private interest in on the action. I think that was a lot of what happened with the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, we should have been willing to say straight up that we just want, you know, we want Medicare for all. Um, Medicare is complicated and it's problematic, right? But it's not nearly as complicated as what we ended up with. Um, and that uh, one way or another, we're going to end up getting blamed when the complexity of these things ends up um, making us look bad like it is with the exchanges. And that we ought to be willing to, in a way, go out and straightforwardly say to the public, um, here's what we want. Here's the social justice justification for it. Um, and maybe we'll lose. Here's the cost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll lose and may and that either we can make that, that that claim to the public in a transparent, direct way. Or we should just accept that we're not going to win and we're going to wait and fight another day. My guest today has been Stephen Tellis. Steve, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks a lot, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.